Mormon missionaries knock on the door. What do you do? Welcome to the Catholic Podcast. I'm your host, Chloe Linger. I'm joined by my regular guest, Joe Heschmeyer. Welcome to the show, Joe. Thanks for having me yeah, on, Thanks Chloe. for making time for it tonight. So we are going to talk today about what happens when your your doorbell rings and it's not the delivery man. Um, and you open the door, it's, it's Mormon missionaries. And so we want to talk about how to really converse with them in a way that's kind and Catholic, but also the differences that we have in our faith. Exactly. Beautiful. So let's just start for listeners and for myself, because I don't know very much about Mormonism, so I think I'll be learning a lot this episode. Can you just give us a brief overview about what Mormonism is as a religion, kind of how it got its roots, and also what the mission of Mormon missionaries is? Okay, so very briefly, the technical name for the major denomination within Mormonism Mm -hmm is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So you'll sometimes hear them called LDS. LDS, RLDS, and several other, the Beckerites and others, are all offshoots of the same movement begun by Joseph Smith. And they're called Mormons because the uh, biblical, or the, like, the new addition to the Bible that he claims to have discovered is called the Book of Mormon. And that's actually a collection of ancient documents that he claims to have found. Uh, so as a young man, he was out and he, he prayed to God and said, which of these denominations is right? And the answer came back, none of them. And then after that, he had a special uh, revelation where he was led to these golden tablets. And so there's this whole kind of unpacking. Uh, then he had to translate the golden tablets by divine inspiration. And then he had them transcribed. That becomes the Book of Mormon. In addition to that, Uh, There's also something called Doctrines and Covenants. Now, Doctrines and Covenants is, uh, it's like more directly revelation to Joseph Smith. So he's not saying the translation of this was revealed to me, but Joseph Smith and then after him. uh, These are alleged direct revelations to them. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are two other documents that are relevant too. These are called Official Declaration 1 and Official Declaration 2. Official Declaration 1 puts an end to the practice of polygamy in the U.S., although there are some offshoots that aren't LDS that continue to practice it. They're very much on the fringes. Uh, and then Official Declaration 2 uh, permits black people to become priests because that had been forbidden for a long time, allegedly by divine revelation. That's fascinating. Both of those, I think, are probably worth yeah. <laughs> talking some more about, but those are just kind of interesting features of it. So, the, the crux of what the Mormon claim is, is that Jesus founded his church and the apostles went out and tried to get converts, but because of the faithlessness of the people, the apostolic succession didn't continue after the original 12 apostles. So within a generation, Christianity is functionally dead. This is called the great apostasy. And so Jesus founds the church and it lasts less than a generation. Interestingly, this idea is in part uh, borrowed from Protestantism, because Protestantism will say that there was a great apostasy. Some will have it a gradual great apostasy. Some will have a particular time and date that they say with Constantine or after the death of the last apostle or at some point in history, Christianity, as intended by Jesus Christ, stopped. And then you got the corrupt false church of Roman Catholicism. So... We're a big part of the story yeah, very much so. for both Protestants and for Mormons. Mm-hmm. Because, to, I mean, to have any validity as a new church, you have to say the existing church isn't right. valid. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. otherwise, you're wired. Why do you exist? 
the interesting thing about this is both Protestants and Mormons believe typically in some sort of great apostasy. Mormons explicitly, um, Protestants, it varies. There's not really a standard, all Protestants believe this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But for those who do believe in a great apostasy, the Mormon claim in some sense uh, makes more sense. Because rather than saying Christianity was restarted after having failed with the apostles, was restarted by a German monk like Luther or a French uh, lawyer like John Calvin, they say, oh no, it was a prophet in America. Well, what's appealing about that is at least it makes sense. I mean, the prophet may be a true prophet or a false prophet, but you would think if God himself founded the original Christian church and it failed, the person who's going to outdo God is not going to be just some lawyer from France. And yet, the bizarre thing about, whether it be Lutheranism, Calvinism, or Mormonism here, is that all of them end up with these theories that the church Christ founded failed, but the church they founded succeeded. It's a big because, claim. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it is a big claim. And a, very rarely will you, I mean, you, you won't ever hear it articulated like that. That's not how people think yeah. about it. But it, it is the functional result of what they're saying. By this theory, in the 19th century, Americans didn't fail. But the first century Jews who walked with Jesus and converted and were willing to die for the faith they did. We'll talk about that later in the episode when mm -hmm. we talk about the apostasy more directly. But it's a big part of the story. So you have this apostasy, you have this need for, the, you know, who's the real religion? So Joseph Smith is really responding to two issues. The Protestant belief that there's a great apostasy and the scandal of denominationalism. In other words, if Christianity is true, why are there so many different denominations? Yeah, Shouldn't there be one true church? Yeah. So he has an interestingly Catholic impulse, but has been poisoned against Catholicism by kind of the air he was breathing in the 19th century in the U.S. Yep. It was a very anti-Catholic climate. So rather than converting to Catholicism, he, uh, he claims to have this revelation, claims to have found all of, all of these tablets, and, and he starts a new religion. I should mention here as an aside that this was a time when a lot of wild new religious movements were starting. So when you're talking about all sorts of like the Millerites and these other uh, really fringe kind of groups, the Shakers, like the 19th century was a really yeah. interesting time for fringe versions of Protestantism, fringe versions of Christianity, things that are only functionally sort of kind of iffy in Christianity. So that, I think, leads to another important point. Mormons will tell you that they're Christian and they believe that they're Christian. The name of their church is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But they will not pray to Jesus, and they don't think that he is our God. That seems like very anti-Christian. Right. They think that he's uh, a prophet. They think that he, I mean, they think he is a God, but that's because they're polytheists. They don't believe in the Trinity. So from either a Catholic or a Protestant perspective, without being needlessly insulting, I think we'd say, we don't really think... That is Christianity. Like, they can't affirm the Nicene Creed. They can't affirm yeah. any of the kind of core confessional statements of Christianity. And they don't believe that <laughs> revelation ends with Christ. So this, this post-Christian revelation is, in a nutshell, Jesus comes to the new world. Like, Jesus visits America. And in a way, this is uh, a characterization I think both Mormons and Muslims would disagree with. But there are more than passing similarities between Joseph Smith and Muhammad. If you think of, like, American Islam, you're not terribly far off the mark in terms of the kind of religion. You know, it's saying, yeah, 
God had revelation to the Jews. Yeah, he had revelation to the Christians. But those revelations were corrupted and people didn't live them out. Now he has new revelation to the prophet. And oh, by the way, the prophet gets his own army. And oh, by the way, the prophet gets multiple wives. And so there are, you know, at least on the surface level, there are some pretty significant um, similarities between the two. Very much so. But I would add to that also that there's a very American flavor to Mormonism. It's a very, I think this is one of the reasons it's been so attractive in the U.S., is that it doesn't look and feel like an ancient religion because yeah. it, it isn't from ancient times. Right. It right. looks and feels like something from the 19th century U.S. in a kind of democratic setting. The head of their religion is called the president. I mean, it's, it's pretty American. So that's, in a nutshell, kind of some background on what Mormonism is all about. Okay. The mission of missionaries, when they knock on your door, what's their, their end goal? Or what? why do they go out on the streets and knock on people's doors and share their faith? Yeah, so there's this incredible missionary impulse in Mormonism. And I think it's worth acknowledging mm-hmm. and praising. Mormonism right now is still one of the fastest growing religions in the country and one of the fastest growing religions in the world. And no small part of that is because they care about their religion. Right. And Gosh. the lay people in Mormonism actually do something about mm-hmm. it. Uh, and so there's this very large missionary impulse. Uh, you know, there's a stereotype that all Mormons are devout, basically. And that's not really true. But the ones who are devout, really, they really they pound the pavement to bring people to God as they understand it. Uh, so one stat is that about 30% of all 19-year-old Mormon men in the U.S. serve uh, on missions. These are two-year missions. And that number is it's only 30% overall for baptized Mormons. But among those from active LDS families, the number is 80 to 90 percent. Holy smokes. Yeah. So, yeah, there's a large, this tells you two things. It tells you, one, there are a lot more nominal, lukewarm, weak Mormons or even ex-Mormons who are being included in that number. But two, it tells you the ones who are really devout, they are doing something about it. If 80 to 90 percent of, you know, Orthodox Catholic families or masculine Catholic families were out serving on mission, they're 19-year-olds... I think the world would look very different and a great deal more Catholic. Yep. So it's a two-year mission. And the point of the mission is twofold. One, it teaches the missionary his faith and how to present his faith. I, I say he here because it's overwhelmingly male. Uh, women can, but the expectation is that they won't. Okay. Uh, and two, it's to bring other people to Mormonism. Yeah. So it, it BYU in Utah, mm-hmm. Brigham Young University, which is very like Orthodox Mormon... You're not going to see a lot of 19, 20-year-old guys on campus. Because they're all out on mission. Exactly. Yep. Well, here's the other thing, is that when they come back from mission, this is a great impetus for family starting. Yep. Because there's been this total dearth of 19 and 20-year-old men on campus, so the returning missionaries are, are something uh, <laughs> sought after. <laughs> yeah, they're also, like, these are guys who care about their yeah. faith. They're guys yeah. who've learned how to speak and present on their faith. Yep. They've, you know, traveled, some of them internationally. They're fascinating guys, right? So, I mean... It's the, it's the, uh, the Catholic version of this is the ex-seminarian. <laughs> As an ex-seminarian who's engaged, I take your point. <laughs> so, yeah, it, I mean, it is more like that. Yeah. Um, all Mormon males are eligible to become priests is the term they use for it. Okay. But it doesn't have... So, they'll use terms like priest and bishop. They don't mean what we mean by those terms. Okay. Uh, it's kind of confusing. So... They have a universal priesthood for, for men. Like, if you're a husband and father, you're a priest. Okay, that makes sense. 
So when you are answering the door and a Mormon missionary is there, before we talk about what you can discuss with them um, and kind of like the finer details of their theology, let's talk about how not to respond. So I'd say there are three big ways not to respond. Number one, slamming the door. Yeah. Number two, being a jerk. And number three, more specifically, being snotty about Catholicism. That whole like, I'm right, you're wrong kind of triumphalist attitude. Those are not helpful responses. What they tell people at the door is, I'm not very charitable, and or, I can't defend my faith. Right. And so if you're trying to tell people Catholicism's true and it's worth living, if you're afraid to present Catholicism to a kid, I mean, these are 19 and 20 yeah. year old guys. And one great thing about college age people is that they tend to be pretty open to new ideas. Yeah. They, they want something to believe in. And these are people who take the question of God seriously enough to be out on mission. So these are people who are pretty convinced in many cases that they have the right answer, Mm -hmm. but they care enough about it that they're open to uh, hopefully some sort of dialogue. So recognize that they're, I mean, these are 19 and 20 year old kids who their heart's in the right place in the sense that they're trying to do something good for God, but it doesn't mean they're like extremely well read on Mormonism. They probably know uh, as much or less about Catholicism as you know about Mormonism. Right. And so you can have an authentic dialogue where you seek to understand the other person. You don't have to go in there being an expert on Mormonism. They're happy to tell you. Yeah. Now, later on in this podcast, we'll give you some points probably worth talking to them about. But recognize that they don't really know what you're all about and what you believe. You don't really know what they're all about, what they believe. That's a good foundation to have a conversation. And you can go into it knowing that you're part of the church actually founded by Jesus Christ. Yeah, yeah, there's confidence that comes with that. And so, yeah, I mean, be prepared to say you don't know to questions and maybe follow up. Yep. Another thing about the Mormon missionaries is that if you're having a good charitable uh, dialogue, frequently they will come back. Yeah, yeah. So I've had multiple experiences of mission pairs coming back, and we'd, you know, sit down and have dinner. Uh, My friends, Carrie and Megan, they lived down the block from one of the regional kind of headquarters for these Mormon missionaries. And so they would regularly uh, throw dinner for them and just reach out and be compassionate That's to them. That's awesome. And it got us a lot further than just like shouting at them. Yep. Or, you know, we got a pair of them to actually come with us to mass one day. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. So I don't know what God's going to do with the rest of their story. It wasn't yeah. like there were any immediate like, all right, I'm leaving the LDS <laughs> mission. But they were open to learning more about it. Right. They didn't make any pretense of knowing about Catholicism, mm-hmm. other than maybe what they'd heard, which was largely going to be wrong, or at least types and yeah, right, at yeah. least half true. So I would just say, be charitable, be kind, be compassionate. Because look, Mormonism is attractive not because its theology is true, mm-hmm. not because its theology even makes sense, but because its morality makes sense. Its morality is good. It cares about the family. It cares about being morally upright. Yep. It says in the face of a corrupt world, don't live like that. And that's something that really appeals to people. We, I mean, we live in a culture that cares more about goodness than truth. And that's one of the reasons Mormonism is so successful right now, is that they emphasize goodness. So if you, who have the truth, yeah. don't act with kindness, don't act with goodness, you do a disservice to the gospel. Like, we don't get to have the luxury of choosing truth at the expense of goodness, as atheists often try to do, or goodness at the expense of truth, as Mormons functionally sort of do. We have a fidelity to truth and to goodness, because both of them have their origin in God. We need to be true, and we need to be good. And if we approach the missionaries that way, I think we're off to a good start. 
Yeah. And just seeing it as a conversation with another human being. Like, like you said, it's easy to get trapped in the fear of, shoot, I don't have all the answers. Come back after I do a lot of research and read blogs and listen to podcasts. Like, they just want to have a conversation with you. Yeah. Yeah, I would encourage. So I might discourage taking a bunch of literature. I think that's not a good use of your time. Yep. Because they'll want to give you the Book of Mormon. They'll want to give you several other things to read. And the idea is that you are low-hanging fruit, and they're going to just give you this, you're going to read it, and you're going to convert. Mm -hmm. That's a silly thing to accept, uh, and especially if you accept it with some pretense of, that you're going to read it within like the next week or something when yeah. you talk to them again. Yeah. Instead, just insist on having it as a dialogue. You're not interested in receiving a book, but you're happy to have a conversation. Yeah. That way, they have to be present, and there's another human person there and a person whose soul is meant for the Catholic Church yep. by God. Yep, exactly. So we've talked about how not to respond. How about how to respond? So after you have created a dialogue, you're recognizing them as a person, you're recognizing you don't have to have all the answers. But just to dig deeper into the theology of that, what are some of the theological issues that we as Catholics disagree when it comes to Mormonism? You know, we started talking about apostasy. Yeah. So the idea that the entire church fell away. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about that a little bit. The Mormon belief, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, is that within a generation, Christianity had just functionally ceased to exist. So I want to quote here from the LDS website to make sure that I'm giving a fair and accurate representation of their views on this subject. They said, Jesus Christ established his church during his ministry on the earth. And then they have a quote from President Henry B. Earing uh, from 2008. Now, he is the second counselor of the first presidency, which means that he's part of the leadership structure. I know that's very confusing. It does not mean the first presidency, presidency. of the LDS. It means like the top presidency. And so he's like the number two guy in the top presidency right now. So okay. he's a very important figure within Mormonism, and that's why the LDS church is quoting them, him on their website. So here's his quote. He says, the apostles, after the ascension of Christ, continued to exercise the keys he left with them. But because of disobedience and loss of faith by the members, the apostles died without the keys being passed on to successors. We call that tragic episode the apostasy, end quote. And then the article goes on to say, because of this widespread apostasy, the Lord took the priesthood authority away from the people, end quote. Okay, what do we make of this? Well, we make a few things of this. First, in Matthew 13, there are all of these different images given for the kingdom of God. And one of them is the seed thrown on fertile soil yeah. that bears great fruit, 30-fold. Okay, if the apostles bore no fruit, if they got no converts, that's a pretty stark failure. Yeah. Allegedly, they're going to bear all this fruit. Christ says then they're going to do greater things than he did. And yet they have no converts? They have no... It contradicts the entire narrative of the New Testament, which shows mass conversions to Christianity. And so we see examples of these conversions. We also see in the book of Revelation. So there's the seven churches mentioned in the first few chapters of Revelation. Some of those churches, yeah, they're struggling. They're really like on the verge of collapse. But others are doing great. And we know historically about those churches. So, for example, the church of Smyrna. We don't just have the biblical evidence there. We know that Smyrna was in the area served by the Apostle John. We know John wrote Revelation, which addresses the church of Smyrna. And we know that in a, a disciple of John, St. Ignatius of Antioch, writes to the Smyrnians. So are we to believe 
that this guy who spent decades with John wasn't actually converted, didn't actually have any priestly authority, and didn't continue this on. It's a baffling and totally contrary to several points of the gospel kind of claim. Here an important distinction needs to be made. There is apostasy. It is possible to believe and then to fall away. Now here a little aside, just to talk about Protestant theology for a second. There are a lot of Protestants who believe that once you're saved, you're always saved. This is called once saved, always saved in evangelicalism. Mm -hmm. It's called in Calvinism, often perseverance of the same. You'll find this in some form in a lot of different strands of Protestantism. But bizarrely, a lot of those strands also believe that Christianity as an orthodox religion died out. So no one can fall away, but everyone fell away. Mormonism, again, actually makes in some ways more sense where they just say, yeah, everybody falls away. And in fact, people can fall away. At least it's consistent in that regard. (laughs) It's just contradicted by numerous places in the New Testament, which show the great fruitfulness that the apostles are having. Plus, it puts it back on Jesus, too. Like, who is Jesus? We'll talk about this more later. Who is Jesus that he picks 12 guys and all of them are awful at what he's picking them from? Exactly. So go to Acts 5, uh, verses 34 to 42, and you have Gamaliel's challenge. So to give a little bit of background, the apostles are before the Sanhedrin. They're on trial for teaching that Jesus is the Messiah. And Gamaliel, who's like one of the greatest rabbis who ever lived in Judaism, gets up and says, fellow children of Israel, be careful what you're about to do to these men. Then he gives examples of these various messianic movements that arose and then quickly were squashed. Uh, Theudas, uh, Judas the Galilean, these other guys. And then he said, uh, so Judas the Galilean also drew people after him, but he too perished and all who were loyal to him were scattered. Then he says, so now I tell you, have nothing to do with these men and let them go. For if this endeavor or this activity is of human origin, it will destroy itself. But if it comes from God, you will not be able to destroy them. You may even find yourselves fighting against God. So if Christianity is true, it's not going to be wiped out. If it's not true, it will be wiped out. So when Mormons say, or for that matter, when Protestants say, there is a total apostasy and all Orthodox Christians were wiped out, What they're saying is Christianity is false and Jesus is a false prophet. They don't know they're saying that. But if they paid careful attention to Acts 5, that's the logical conclusion of what they're saying. Christ says the gates of hell will not prevail against his church in Matthew 16. To say it died with the death of the last apostle is to quite literally say the gates of Hades. That at the moment a soul enters the grave, John's, or we'll get back to John, but the last apostle besides John. That then the church is wiped out. It's gone. There's no succession. If Christ is true, the apostasy is false. Mm -hmm. If the apostasy is false, Mormonism and those forms of Protestantism that are contingent upon an apostasy are also false, inasmuch as they say there was one. I mentioned the apostle John. He's going to make this all even stranger. Because I just read you that they believe that the priesthood was taken away from the earth. (laughs) But it gets more complicated because their own text claims that the Apostle John never dies. This is based off of a misunderstanding of John 21, 21 to 23. That's after the resurrection. Jesus has that beautiful interaction with Peter after breakfast. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. And then he foretells Peter's death to him. And Peter, being Peter, 
looks at John and is like, wait, what's going to happen to him? <laughs> if I'm going to die, at least tell me the other guys have to die. And Jesus responds, what is it to you? If I want him to stay alive until I come back, like, what is that to you? Okay, so that's where they're getting it. Right. So he's just saying, like, mind your own business. Right. He's not saying, oh, John's going to live until the second coming. Well, Mormonism actually teaches that John will live until the second coming. And you can find this in the third Nephi, chapter 28. So it's like a special uh, gift to John to never taste death. But notice what that does. Yeah. You can't say... There are no more apostles, and one of the apostles is still alive. Stranger, they have a quorum of 12 apostles, and John is not one of them. He's still alive, but he's not legit. And then believing that he's still alive negates your belief in the, the apostasy because there's still, there's still right. an apostle floating around somewhere. Although, hiding. bizarrely, it means that John has apparently failed to make any converts for 2,000 right. years now. Like, <laughs> if you thought all the other guys were bad, here's all here's John with a lifetime and, and plus some to convert, and he's still failing as a Right, apostle. if you've ever felt bad about your evangelical <laughs> efforts not bearing fruit, this imaginary Mormon version of John has just borne no fruit for like two millennia. So we've talked about the total apostasy. Another point that we disagree on um, is the Mormon's belief in, in who Jesus is, and especially when it comes to prayer and praying to Jesus. So can you talk a little bit about the differences between us and them? When yeah, so they will regularly kind of wrap themselves in the mantle of Christ. It's mm -hmm. even in the title of the LDS Church, and they will present themselves as Christian. This is, I think, something in, somewhat intentional. Unfortunately, they're just not functionally Christian. They believe Jesus is a God. They don't think that he is part of the Trinity. They don't believe in the Trinity. They believe the Father and the Son are separate gods. There's a whole interesting side digression here about lost Mormon texts. So they used to have a belief that the Father and Son made up the Godhead. They, and that the Holy Spirit was simply the common mind between them. That part of Doctrines and Covenants was taken out and replaced with something saying the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are part of the common Godhead. But that mm -hmm. Godhead is not a triune oneness in being. They're all separate. They're all separate. Okay. It's just a pantheon of gods. And so it's more to do with something like Roman paganism yeah. than it is to do with yeah. Roman Catholicism. As part of that, there's what's called the King Foliette speech. This isn't an official binding teaching, but this is a sermon that Joseph Smith preached at the funeral of a guy whose name, I kid you not, was King Foliette. He was not a king. He just had an amazing name. <laughs> in it, uh, there's this fascinating line in which Joseph Smith says, As God is, we shall be, as we are, he once was. In other words, God the Father used to be a regular dude. No. Yeah. And he had his own God. <sighs> No. But then he was elevated to becoming a god, and he got his own planet, Earth, and here we are. Huh, what a mess. His gods, or God's god, has his own god, and on. And so I actually asked a, a Mormon lawyer who was, you know, a very intelligent guy, not, yeah. not a foolish guy. Like, so who's, like, the top god? Yeah. Where does this whole chain end? This is just an infinite regress. And weirdly, all of these gods are apparently still alive. So I'm just like, who's the oldest one? Who's, who's yeah. number one? Yeah. And he said, it's turtles all the way down. Now what that means, this is from 
an old story about infinite regress where allegedly there is this Native American describing uh, his creation myth. And it was uh, some creature on the back of a turtle. And then someone said, wait, what's the turtle on top of? So, and he said, oh, another turtle. And he's like, well, okay, that doesn't really explain the universe. So what about that turtle? And he goes, ah, turtles all the way down. And it's a joke because that's a ridiculous right. kind of theology. But the Mormon religion really is turtles all the way down. The problem is Jesus doesn't fit neatly into this. Mm-mm. He's special. He's a favored son. Yeah. Of God the Father, but he isn't a, a divine being in the sense that we would say he's a divine being or a divine person. Yeah, yeah. They would also say that you're not supposed to pray to him. Uh, and the, again, I just want to throw this in. There are some Protestants, I've encountered Protestants, who also believe that you shouldn't pray to Jesus. And for the same reason, there's no line in scripture that tells you to pray to Jesus. Fortunately, there is a scene in scripture in which we see prayer to Jesus, and that's St. Stephen, as he's being stoned to death. Yep. He looks up, he sees Jesus, and he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he knelt down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. And when he said this, he fell asleep. That's Acts 7, if you look at 55 to 60. Well, that closely parallels, of course, Christ's own words on the cross to the Father. Yeah, yeah. Where he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In Luke 23, and then, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Now, Luke wrote both Luke 23 and Acts 5. I'm sorry, Acts 7. And so this is not a parallel of which he's unaware. He's showing by including these details that the earliest Christians recognized that Jesus was divine and they prayed to him as God. And so there, the Mormon refusal to do so... uh, is just a, a total break from the original apostolic Christianity. Now, I mentioned it at the top, like, they need to be kind. Mormons care about Jesus as they understand him. They misunderstand him, but focus on the desire to have a relationship with him, a desire that I think many of them will recognize, like, yeah, that's really good, and just show how Scripture calls us to even more than what their, their church will permit them to have. Yeah, yeah, calls them to deeper. Yeah, and I mean, look at Catholicism, not only a relationship, but like intimacy, like through the Eucharist. And that's a deep dive in conversation number one. But if the seeds are already there, you just get to water them. Yeah, I, absolutely. So most of the issues upon which we disagree with Protestants, we also disagree with Mormons. There are some exceptions to that. But it, like, so when we're talking about like areas to talk about with Mormons, this is like specifically Mormons. Right. Right. Although you'll sometimes find Protestants who hold one or more of these beliefs. It's basically, this is like what Mormons in particular have wrong. On top of which you can also talk to them about the Catholic distinctives and show why the Catholic Church is true, etc. Right. This is kind of just a starter pack. Here's some conversations. But yeah, like you said, it goes deeper than that. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, honestly, if you know why what you believe is true, you don't really need to know why what everyone else believes is false. Yeah. Because Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So if Jesus is true, then anything contrary to him and contrary to his church, which he founded, is false. Just by definition. Yeah. You can't affirm two contraries. You can't say X and not X simultaneously. So we've talked about Jesus. We've talked about the total apostasy. 
Let's talk about something that is very well known in the news today, thanks to Ireland's vote that they just recently have. How do Mormons and Catholics line up on the topic of abortion? We're actually very close, but Catholics are better on it. (laughs) That's the overly simplistic view. Although Mormons, honestly, in many cases, are better at living out what their church teaches Mm -hmm. on this. So let's let's just acknowledge that outright. Ireland is a tragic example reminding us of this. Landslide, like two to one vote in a country that's by their constitution established for the glory of the Trinity. But rather than getting into that, let's talk about Mormonism. So, like, Mormons are devoutly pro-life. But unfortunately, the LDS Church is pro-life with exceptions. And most Mormons don't know this. Especially most Mormon missionaries, because these are 19 and 20-year-old kids, who've never really had to grapple with abortion, probably, up close. The LDS position um, on abortion, as presented by one of the so-called 12 apostles, Russell Nelson, he says that this war called abortion is a war on the defenseless and the voiceless. It is a war on the unborn. This war is being waged globally. Ironically, civilized societies that have generally placed safeguards on human life have now passed laws that sanction this practice. This matters greatly to us because the Lord has repeatedly declared this divine imperative, Thou shalt not kill. Okay. He's just laid out the stakes for it. He's just told us why the pro-life issue matters. And he's right. That's beautifully put. Yeah. But unfortunately... The LDS Church also says abortion is sometimes okay in the following four categories. Number one, incest, even consensual incest. We'll get back to why that's a particularly ugly example. Two, rape. Three, when the life of the mother is in serious danger. Actually, really, there's there's five, because the health of the mother is a separate category, which is a much broader category, because pregnancy, almost by definition, threatens the health of a mother. Yep. And five, when the fetus is not going to survive beyond birth. So in those cases, even though God said thou shalt not kill, even though they acknowledge it's murder, they say, in these five cases, murder is okay sometimes. You have to go to your bishop and talk with him about it, but if your conscience is clear and he says it's okay, go for it. Now, Mormon missionaries, in my experience, when I show them that in their own church's documents, are shocked and taken aback. Like, imagine if you were to find some document from the Vatican saying, oh, by the way, abortion's okay sometimes. You'd be horrified. And especially if you thought, like, oh, this is a divinely inspired kind of... Because what they believe about the president is not just what we believe about the Pope in terms of infallibility. Mm -hmm. They believe that this is actually a living prophet among them who can receive ongoing revelation. So when that leadership tells them sometimes murder's okay, it's a huge alarm bell for anyone open to the truth, anyone open to life, anyone who cares about that issue. Like, something is seriously wrong. And you can almost understand in tragic cases like the life of the mother, where it's not actually okay, but it's at least understandable. But in cases like consensual incest, the only coherent justification for that is that the child has a slightly higher risk of fetal abnormality. But then you're just saying it's okay to murder disabled people because they're disabled. What's stranger about this is that the justification for it is that God contradicts himself. The translation in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill, Mm -hmm. is better translated and better understood as thou shalt not murder. The the Hebrew, that's a much bigger question about how it was said in Hebrew and what it was understood to mean. Because 
God calls the Israelites to war sometimes. And there are times in which he calls them to take life. There are capital crimes in the Old Testament. He calls them into holy war, etc. Mormons say, no, the commandment is actually thou shalt not kill. And so God is contradicting the Ten Commandments, but because he's the author of them, he can supersede them. Here, if you have ever listened to the Regens or read the Regensburg Address by Pope Benedict, this is the contrast he draws between Christianity and Islam. Is in both Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, God himself is bound by his own rationality. He cannot do something irrational. He cannot do something evil. But Islam, and I would add also Mormonism, is volitional. And one of the Islamic philosophers goes so far as to say that God could command us to practice idolatry and we'd have to practice it. So God can command you to do something evil and wicked and you have to do it. Well, the Mormon justification for why abortion is okay in these cases is functionally that the author of the Ten Commandments can abrogate them and do something that is objectively evil, something that is just the taking of innocent life, that sometimes that's okay. A good point to bring up in conversation, especially if they don't know about it. That's hard, too, where it's like, this is what you believe, or this is what you say you believe, something you've never seen. And I'd say just on the level of sort of... Um, conversation, the order to go in is to really talk to them about the commonality. Build up the goodwill on the pro-life issue, and I think you'll hear a beautiful pro-life witness, and then bring up what their church said. So that it's not you against them, it's you and them against this ugly teaching right. by the LDS church. Um, the last topic really to cover that we differ when it comes to Mormons is polygamy and plural marriage. And we've mentioned this before when you're mentioning some of the documents in the Mormon church, how polygamy isn't allowed in the United States anymore, but can we delve deeper into, into that subject? Yeah, absolutely. So this is a confusing topic. Uh, there are a few things to know. Plural marriage is the kind of polite term for polygamy. Uh, it's what they prefer. So the origin goes something like this. Initially, the Book of Mormon actually condemns polygamy as adultery. Uh, this is Jacob 2.24. If you don't recognize that chapter and verse, it's because it's not in the Bible, it's in the Book of Mormon. But Jacob 2.24 specifically condemns polygamy. Well, an interesting twist happens. Emma Smith, the wife of Joseph Smith, finds out that her husband is cheating on her. Joseph Smith is an adulterer. This is a fact not widely mentioned um, in Mormonism for, I'm going to assume, obvious reasons. <laughs> and so then he conveniently gets a new revelation that says this is okay He's just got multiple wives. And in fact, it's good to have multiple wives. And this is a new and everlasting covenant. But then the U.S. government's like, you can't become a state yeah. if you're practicing polygamy. And so then they get a new revelation, official declaration one, that says the new and everlasting covenant is over and they're back to not practicing polygamy. This is very convenient. Oh, yeah. They keep getting these very <laughs> politically convenient yeah, revelations. Yeah. Well, perfect timing. Yeah. The problem is that they don't bother to, like, line anything up. So I already mentioned the volitionality that they, God can change his mind. And so something can be forbidden on Friday and allowed on Saturday, even a moral law. Like, murder could be okay tomorrow. Yep. Because God's not bound by rationality in this view. But what's weirder about this um, is that it means that there's a contradiction not just in the sense of we used to believe X and now it's okay, mm -hmm. it didn't used to be okay. That you can kind of harmonize. You can say, you know, you can't do this, now you can. Like with your kids, you say, oh, you can't yeah. stay at past eight, and then they hit a certain age and you say, okay, now you can. That's fine. 
What you can't say is, my kid can and can't stay up after eight at the same time and in the same manner. That's yeah, just a violation of the principle of non-contradiction. So I want to read you two different passages. The first one is the aforementioned Jacob 2.24, which says, Behold, David and Solomon truly had many wives and concubines, which thing was abominable before me, saith the Lord. The second is Doctrines and Covenants 132. This is the part where there's this new special revelation given to Joseph Smith. I'll talk about that a little more in a second here. But it says in verses 38 to 39, David also received many wives and concubines, and also Solomon and Moses my servants, as also many others of my servants from the beginning of creation until this time. And in nothing did they sin, save in those things which they received not of me. David's wives and concubines were given unto him of me by the hand of Nathan my servant, and others of the prophets who had the keys of this power. And in none of these things did he sin against me, save in the case of Uriah and his wife. So let's leave aside the special category of David cheating with Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. Other than that, polygamy is good. And in the case of Solomon, polygamy is just good. He didn't have this kind of case of adultery. So you have Jacob 2.24 saying David and Solomon had all of these wives and that was wicked. Then you have Doctrines Doctrines and Covenants 132 saying David and Solomon had all of these wives and that was good. With this one exception. There's no way both of those things can be true. Uh -uh. This isn't like... You can stay up till 8. Now you used to not be able to. This is like, you can and can't do that thing. And you just say, well, that's a contradiction. So this is just an inescapable contradiction. Now, I think it's important to focus on this element. Because oftentimes, people will focus on the fact that polygamy is sort of unsavory. But that's not a very good argument. I mean, on a a visceral level, they just say, well, it's a different time. You know, in the Old Testament, you see people with many wives, etc. So I think Mormons are right to disregard that as a weak argument. But that they affirm and deny the exact same thing to the exact same people is just an incoherence. But this incoherence is explained inadvertently. Now, again, I want to tell you, LDS.org is where I'm getting this from. This is the official Mormon website. And it has a description before, at the beginning of the chapter, explaining what this section is. It says... Revelation given through Joseph Smith the prophet at Nauvoo, Illinois, recorded July 12, 1843, relating to the new and everlasting covenant, including the eternity of the marriage covenant and the principle of plural marriage. Here's a critical sentence. Although the revelation was recorded in 1843, evidence indicates that some of the principles involved in this revelation were known by the prophet as early as 1831, which is a very genteel way of saying Although Joseph Smith allegedly got this revelation in 1843, we now have evidence that he was cheating on his wife from 1831 onwards. Shoot. This is obviously a huge mess. It's no longer just contradictory competing scriptures. It's also you've got a sleazeball of a prophet. Right. And a cover-up. And a cover-up. Yeah. I haven't even read you the most horrific parts of this. So there's just this... This is uncomfortable reading. But there's just the, uh, the spousal abuse parts. This is verse... Uh, 51 onward of Doctrine and Covenants 132. Verily I say unto you, a commandment I give unto mine handmaid, Emma Smith, your wife, whom I have given unto you, that she stay herself and partake not of that which I commanded you to offer unto her. That's a divorce. Right. For I did it, saith the Lord, to prove you all, as I did Abraham, and that I might require an offering at your hand by covenant and sacrifice. 
And let mine handmaid, Emma Smith, receive all those that have been given unto my servant Joseph, and who are virtuous and pure before me. And those who are not pure and have said they were pure shall be destroyed, saith the Lord. And then two verses later, And I command mine handmaid, Emma Smith, to abide and cleave unto my servant Joseph and to none else. But if she will not abide this commandment, she shall be destroyed, saith the Lord. For I am the Lord thy God, and will destroy her if she abide not in my law. This is so self-serving. It is so self-serving. It's fascinating. You know, the apostles get a license to live a life of poverty, yeah. exclusion from the Jewish community, suffering, repeated whippings, mm-hmm. beatings, etc., and then execution. Yeah, ultimately they die. Joseph Smith has an army, and then a bunch of wives, and is living the high life. He has every interest to lie, and there's great evidence that he was lying, yeah. cheating on his wife, and then covering it up with fake prophecy. So he has this, oh, here's an offer of divorce, but if you take it, you get to go to hell, because of a special revelation that only I have received. And it has your name written on it. And your name, yeah, this is an Emma Smith-specific revelation from god yeah. he really doesn't want to see this particular marriage break up even though she's just found out her husband is cheating on her. that's fascinating it is it's, it's crazy i mean it's pretty obviously the opposite of the apostolic experience yeah they give up marriage there's a subtle line in which peter says we've given up everything to follow you mm-hmm. and christ says those have given up wives and children and lands we'll receive a hundred more in other words this is a subtle thing but the reason we hear about Peter's mother-in-law and not a wife of Peter or any of the other apostles is because the apostles appear to have practiced celibacy. And they lived a life of poverty. Yep. Joseph Smith lives neither of those things. They embraced martyrdom. Joseph Smith is sometimes wrongly claimed to have been a martyr. Uh, but in fact, he died in a jailbreak where he had a smuggled in gun and he shot at two people. So he actually dies mid-attempted murder in a jailbreak, which is about as far, again, as you get. The opposite of martyrdom. Right. Okay, so getting back to plural marriage, there's one more chapter in this story. So remember there's that long gap between when Joseph Smith decided to start practicing plural marriage and when he got the special revelation in 1843. I believe it's 1843. Yeah, 1843. Well, if you go to Official Declaration 1, I mentioned this before. This is when they try to enter the U.S. And the U.S. says, no, you practice polygamy. We're not, we're not going to have it. Well, in that document, they claim the president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints swears, we are not teaching polygamy or plural marriage, nor permitting any person to enter into its practice. Which is just flagrantly a lie. Yeah, yeah, that's the opposite of what they're doing, though. And so yeah. both of those texts are available on the LDS website. That's fascinating that they, I don't know, that they published that. Like, it would be easy to be like, no, no, that's in the past. Like, we're not. But the fact that it's like, it's out there. You can go on the internet and check it out yourself. You know, it's, it's fascinating you mentioned that they could just, like, cover it up and hide it. Yeah. Because they do that in other cases. Uh, so there's actually lost scriptures. Yeah, this is, uh, this is something that most people uh, don't know. So Doctrines and Covenants 101 exists but it's not the original Doctrines and Covenants, Section 101. Draft 2. There was, yeah, it's Draft 2. It's Take 2. <laughs> it replaces an earlier Doctrines and Covenants, Section 101, which declared, quote, Inasmuch as this Church of Christ has been reproached with the crime of fornication and polygamy, we declare that we believe that one man should have one wife and one woman, but one husband, except in case of death, when either is at liberty to marry again, end quote. Now, that was 1835. So put the timeline together here. Yeah. 
This is after Joseph Smith has secretly started up an affair with another woman, mm -hmm. before his wife has found out about it, but there are rumors circulating, not only amongst Mormons, but among non-Mormons who hate the Mormons. And so one of the charges being brought is that they're practicing polygamy, which they were. Right, which is the truth. <laughs> and so Doctrines and Covenants is a special revelation swearing that they're not. And then they get a special revelation saying that they should be. And in fact, that this had been the case for like 12 years during this period when they were swearing they weren't doing right. it. And so the timeline, they start practicing polygamy. They swear they're not. They get a special revelation that says they should. Then they swear they're not again. It's just chock full of not just contradictions, but what appear to be out and out lies. Yeah. So they've covered up things before. Why don't they cover up polygamy? Yeah, quite simply, the reason they didn't just cover up this whole section of Doctrine and Covenants mm -hmm. is it's way too widely known. Yeah, it comes to mind when you think of the Mormon Church. Right, it was way too widely known at the time. Yeah. This was the yeah. rumor circulating even before that portion of Doctrine and Covenants was promulgated. So you can't just wipe it away. Plus, break-off sects of Mormonism continue to practice polygamy, like the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Okay. And so... You just can't basically scrub it from all the other sects. Right. Because after the death of Joseph Smith, he hadn't thought about who his successor would be. This is another way he's like Muhammad. Uh, you have this incredible succession struggle because there was no plan after the prophet. Because what does he care? He's going to be dead. Yeah. And so there's this break. One half goes with bloodline. One half goes with the charismatic preachers. Okay. This is the RLDS-LDS split. It's also the Sunni-Shia split yeah. in Islam. Yeah, that's a good point. And so... That's kind of, that horse has left the gate. Like you just can't go can't back and, and scrub this from all of the other documents. Mm -mm. And so this flagrant contradiction simply exists on the books. Alrighty. So the next time a Mormon comes to the door, the takeaways from this episode, if you only remember a couple things, yours are? I would say a few things. Number one, that a total apostasy is contrary to scripture. And there's plenty of evidence to this. And that... Claiming that Jesus started a church and it died out makes Jesus a failure. Acts, five, Acts 7 is a good place to go for this. Mm -hmm. uh, number two, we are supposed to pray to Jesus. And Acts 7, I meant Acts 5 earlier. Acts 7 uh, shows that because St. Stephen prays to Jesus as he's dying. Three, Mormons are right to be pro-life. The LDS church is wrong to have exceptions that sometimes permits abortion. And number four... On the issue of plural marriage, we see both internal contradictions, as in the case of Solomon. Mm -hmm. We also see a clear pattern of corruption, adultery, and lying under oath. That is not what you would expect to find in divine revelation. So let's close out the episode with a prayer. And glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. <laughs>